Hello, I'm Ian Hartley. And I'm Warren Kay. Welcome to the Rediscovering God podcast. We invite you to join us as we endeavor to see him more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. You will notice the sound quality on our track today is not uh, what you have come to expect, but I assure you that neither one of us were exposed to a coronavirus in the recording of this podcast as we were able to both stay in our individual homes and use different technology to bring this to you. I hope you enjoy it. So tonight we're looking at um, how much control does God actually have? Because I've been talking with people about this coronavirus and some just kind of shrug it off and say, well, God is in control and uh, expect that that kind of answers the whole problem. And uh, so it's, it's just that it would be good for us to take a look at this and see how much control does God actually have? in our world and, uh, and how does he, uh, what does he want us to know about the control that he has or uses? So um, on April 3 of this year, an Italian priest and theologian, Nicola Bu, stated that the COVID-19 pandemic is a warning to the men of the church who have betrayed Christ's teaching. Uh, he no doubt had good motives and wanted the church uh, leaders to be purer. But the implication is that uh, God is punishing the world for clergy sins, which seems to be a bit unfair. I don't know what you think, Warren. Well, that's what I noticed too, that, you know, if God, if God does punish for wickedness, then uh, why wouldn't he punish the wicked, the, the men of the church that he seems to be calling out rather than innocent people all over the world for these immense um, transgressions? Yeah. Well, this Italian priest uh, is not alone. Uh, many uh, believe that uh, this plague is a sign of the end of the world. Some say it's the uh, mark of the beast and so on. And it is true that the plague was one of the signs of God's curse for disobedience in the law as given by Moses. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 28. You know, Warren, that being in control is terribly important to us human beings. Uh, we, uh, it's important who's going to sit at the head of the table. You think of dinner parties and you think of uh, visiting politicians and if you have a board meeting. Uh, the name games we play, why are titles so important to us? Uh, doctor, professor, your worship, or Lord so-and-so. And then we have hierarchical authority structures. You know, you have the chairman of the board, and the vice chairman, and the secretary, and the treasurer, uh, and so on, ad infinitum. Mm -hmm. Do you think, Warren, uh, as a pastor, do you think divorces are often about control and power? I'm sure. I'm sure they are. I, I think that, um, I hadn't thought about that in that way, but um, yeah, it's probably often a result of a, of a power struggle that never gets resolved. Yeah. And alienation in families, often over power struggles. Um, every now and then you hear of an estate that causes power struggles in the surviving members of the family. Yes. And then, of course, most wars are for the control of natural resources. Not all of them. But uh, Second World War was about the expansion of Germany in order to capture more natural resources. They didn't have a, a source of oil, for instance. So that was important for them to try and capture Russia with its oil. oil. Hmm. You know, the interesting thing about this is that uh, while we all need a power base uh, from which to operate on in this world, um, I say that because if a person feels powerless, they're not very motivated to function in society. The, the kingdom of this world, which is contrasted with the kingdom of heaven, uh, the difference between the two is really about power and force and deceit. 
the kingdom of this world is quite happy to use power, violence, and force. Whereas the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus, you don't resist an evil person and you love your enemy. So they're very different. We'll talk about that a bit uh, later. Mm -hmm. So the phrase God is in control um, is very widely used. Uh, not, not always in exactly that form. Um, but for instance, when somebody who's lost a loved one says, God took my baby or my mother, um, they're really saying that God's in control of life and death. And he decided, um, because he's in control, that this was time for that person to die. Mm -hmm. Do you hear people saying that? I do. Yeah, often. Yeah. It seems like it's an attempt to make it okay, because God took them. Yeah. yeah. In Arabic, inshallah, uh, means uh, God's will. So, um, you say, um, I'm going to go to Calgary tomorrow, inshallah, meaning uh, if it's God's will. Hmm. You're too young, but uh, I'm old enough uh, to have experienced people saying, I'll go to Cal Calgary tomorrow, DV. And the DV stood for Dio Valente, which meant God willing. Same thing. Uh, and then we lived in East Africa for a while where Swahili is the lingua franca. And the same uh, phrase in Swahili is Sharia Mugu which means, well, that's God's doing or God's will or God's problem. So if you fall off your bicycle and break your leg, you say, Sharia Mugu, meaning, well, I guess God planned that for me and he's going to help me get back to health. Hmm. So that, the idea of karma from Hinduism, reincarnation and kismet, uh, is all about the, this fatalistic uh, attitude, well, the gods have determined this and there's nothing much I can do about it. Now, before the Saxons invaded, uh, uh, England and the Angles of the Britons were living there. They used to worship magic trees in the forest. And from them we get this idea of saying, uh, touch wood, meaning the God will look after me, is in control. You ever use that phrase? Well, I, I've heard it used in a slightly different way where somebody will say something like, I haven't caught the coronavirus, knock on wood. Yeah, okay, that's where it comes from. Yeah, interesting. I didn't realize that. And then we have the phrase sort of popularized in and pop songs by whatever will be, will be. Uh, like there's nothing you can do about it. Just somebody else is in control. Our lives are determined outside of our control. So the origin of God being in control uh, comes from many of the stories in the Old Testament and the way they are told. So the flood story is traditionally told, uh, God got fed up and drowned the world and just started over again, which clearly indicates that God's in control. Yeah. doesn't see pleases. You're talking about the Job story? Well, and, you know, Job's story is, is very similar. Satan goes to God and gets permission before he can harm Job. And, uh, and so it gives the idea that whatever happens to me, God must have given permission for the devil to do that to me or to allow that to happen to me. Yeah. And you know that uh, uh, Job's uh, lament in the first two chapters of this epic story is, is used very often at funerals. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, that was Job's opinion. And he never knew about chapters one and two. If you read the rest of the book, Job has no knowledge of the shatan uh, that was causing him all the grief. He keeps blaming God for it and asking God, why are you doing this to me? So the, the dreadful plagues that came on Egypt were definitely from God. So God decided that it was time for the Israelites to leave. So he engineered it according to the scripture. Um, and then a little after that, 
we have the blessings and the curses stated depending upon your behavior in Israel. So I'll give you one example. In Deuteronomy 28, 20, the Lord himself will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in everything you do until at last you're completely destroyed for doing evil and abandoning me. Now that sounds very much like uh, someone who's in control threatening people that if they do evil or abandon him, that this is what he's going to do to them. Mm-hmm. Again, giving the idea um, that this being is definitely in control of the situation. And Ezekiel 14.21 says, Now this is what the Sovereign Lord says, How terrible it will be when all four of these dreadful punishments fall upon Jerusalem. War, famine, wild animals, and disease, destroying all her people and animals. So that, that was the Old Testament curse. Um, those four items. Uh, war, famine, wild animals, and disease. And interestingly enough, if you look at the first four trumpets in the book of Revelation, they parallel those four curses from the Old Testament. Hmm. So, um, yeah. so does does this change um, between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Because Jesus indicates that, no, these people weren't more evil. That's not why the tower fell on them. That's not why they were killed yeah. in, in the temple. So h- how do you explain the difference between these two? So uh, we've talked about this before on a previous podcast, is that uh, the idea of a supernatural evil being is absent in the Old Testament. So all supernatural events are attributed to God. And there's a, another interesting phenomena is that the word consequence is never used in the Old Testament. In fact, it's not used in the New Testament either. Consequence is a concept that uh, we've developed in more modern times. Before, what happened to you was regarded as a blessing or a curse. And in the Old Testament, it definitely came from God. But let, let's talk about what Jesus said, um, since you raised the issue, sure. because it's an important one. So Jesus taught that this disasters on this planet were not from God. So you want to read Luke 13 from verse 1? Sure. So about this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked. Is that why he suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 yeah. people who died when the tower... If I can just interrupt you before Sorry, you go yeah. there. Mm-hmm. So what's happening here is people are saying to Jesus, well, uh, Pilate killed all these people from Galilee who were offering sacrifices at the temple. They must have been very bad people. Uh, because the Jews regarded uh, a tragedy like this as punishment from God uh, for evil in your life. And if you were rich, that was evidence of God's blessing in your life for right. being a virtuous person. Mm-hmm. So Jesus counters by saying, no, no, that's not how it works. Those Galileans weren't worse sinners than the other Galileans. So it, it, it certainly would cause a person to go back and reflect on those verses that we looked at in the Old Testament to say, maybe God wasn't doing those things either. They were just seen as supernatural actions that were attributed to God. You see, we're always confronted by the newness of Jesus' insights. And uh, Jesus is more authoritative than the Old Testament. Now, having said that, I'm just quickly... Uh, say that I'm not demeaning, discounting the Old Testament. I'm just saying that there's a hierarchy here. And that if we have to choose between Jesus and the Old Testament, which we have to at times, mm-hmm. um, then we choose Jesus because he is, in fact, God. Right. Good point. So you want to read uh, verse 4 and 5, which you tried to read and I uh, interrupted you? 
And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, I tell you again, that unless you repent, you will perish too. So Jesus is clearly breaking this uh, connection between tragedy and wickedness um, that was assumed from the Old Testament. Uh, and he's saying, what he's actually saying is, look, these are random uh, tragedies. And they weren't sent from God and had nothing to do with how wicked these people were. Mm-hmm. So this, this really plays into this whole matter of God and control. So I think it's helpful to make a definition of control or to consider a definition. I've got here, control is the ability to order a situation according to one's desires. Now, just to make that very practical, uh, if I'm riding a horse and I control the horse, it means that I make it go where I want to, at the speed I want it to go, and so on. So the ability to order a situation according to one's desires would be a definition of control. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think that that's a a good definition of, uh, of what we're talking about here. So... Now, there's, there's sort of two realms of our existence. One is the physical line uh, that we experience. You know, we, we live in a body, we part of the body, uh, and then we have what I call a moral uh, universe that we belong to. That's why we can make choices. Now, you and I were talking a little earlier, and you mentioned, uh, can you say that again, that the connotation of moral for you has to do with? Well, I don't see moral as... A- uh, choosing between right and wrong. It, it was a moral decision if I chose the good thing or the bad thing. And I had, it was obviously a very limited view of the word moral. Well, but it's correct in what you're suggesting because the whole idea of choice implies that there's a moral facet, a moral part to our being, that you can actually make the choice between right and wrong, which doesn't exist for animals as far as I know. True. They don't have a moral aspect to their being. So let's talk about uh, the physical aspect first. Um, clearly God, as the creator of the universe, is, is physically in control of our finely tuned cosmos. I mean, um, planets are not banging into each other and stars collide, but very infrequently, uh, and so on. Yeah, it amazes me that we can predict the exact time that an eclipse will take place, years in advance. Yeah, yes. And this is because the universe is finely tuned. Mm-hmm. Um, we can talk about planetary and star movements. I'm always interested when some astronomer tells me that a, a comet from outer space will be entering our solar system and we'll be able to see it on such and such an evening at this position in the sky. I yeah, mean, that, that's pretty amazing to me. I don't live on the coast, but I know that those that do, they have charts that, that tell them exactly when high tide is, what, what day of the year, you know, whatever, they know exactly what, when high tide will be or when low tide will be. Mm-hmm. So and that's connected to the moon. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, of course, we have Passover coming up, um, which is related to the full moon, the full moon in spring. And then we have Easter coming up, which is the first Sunday after the first full moon in spring. So those two are connected. Mm-hmm. So in the physical world that we're talking about, manipulation is a synonym for control. Uh, like you control a horse or you manipulate the horse. Um, there's nothing sinister about the word manipulation when we're talking about physical control. Um, now, if you think about a group of people and their physical control, uh, think about crowds at a football match or wanting to watch the coronation and so on. We actually control, physically control people by force and violence and fear. 
uh, through the use of the police and the army and financial penalties. But when you come to the moral side, um, it, how do you influence people morally? Yeah, because God, God is God doesn't use force, and so He's not into physical control, but but moral control. Yes. So how did you persuade um, Cheryl to marry you? Did you take her behind the school and beat her up a bit? <laughs> no, I certainly couldn't do that. That wouldn't. I, I needed to win her heart. So. This is what we're talking about when we talk about this moral side of our lives. Because she needed to make a choice uh, among all the young men that she knew about who she'd spend the rest of her life with. <clears throat> so you have to appeal to her morally. Mm -hmm. You're very, very quiet. Well, yeah, I'm still wrapping my mind around that use of the word. And it, it certainly, yeah, it, it's certainly not uh, in contrast to physical influence. It's a moral influence. And I, I'm starting to understand that. So your relationship with your wife is a moral one. I'm not saying there isn't a physical relationship. I'm just saying that the actual connection is moral, which then led to a physical relationship. Mm -hmm. But that could change. She might see, see some other man run off with him. And the, you could try and physically intimidate her, but usually the moral choice outweighs the physical penalties. I can remember a father describing his daughters and it was he, he you know he, he was fine with the physical control as long as they were small but when they got to be big enough he said it was just like tire tracks over across your head like they could just do whatever they chose because he wasn't able to influence them morally to win their hearts and they they just walked away yeah so god's government uh is not physical but moral he can only win our loyalty by goodness and compassion and if he's truly a moral being he offers no penalties that would choose against him because that would be immoral. Mm. It would be like a, a politician saying, vote for me and I'll lower the taxes. Uh, vote against me and you'll end up in jail. Yeah. Well, that happens in some places, but we, we wouldn't take to it too kindly in uh, Canada, I don't think. Right. So I want to talk about this moral attraction or control and how that comes about. Um, there was no physical battle in Eden. It was a mental battle. It was a moral war uh, where Satan uh, was trying to capture the imagination of Adam and Eve. When we when we fall in love, what we do is we actually concede moral control to another person because that person has won our admiration and our affection. Hmm. So you have some examples of moral influence. Explain those to us. Okay, I, in thinking about this, I was thinking about uh, film stars and sports stars. How do how does it come about that we're willing to uh, spend so much time and money on them? Uh, isn't it because we recognize that they have uh, a superior skill that we admire and perhaps even covet for ourselves in actors or singers or baseball players or golf players or whoever our heroes are at the time? Mm -hmm. So I think that's one way that people get moral influence over us is by this superior skill they have. And then another way is through um, exceptional beauty. For instance, uh, Vincent van Gogh's art. Uh, he was not the sort of man to inspire devotion, uh, but his paintings command this absolute adoration amongst those who uh, value paintings and so on. And uh, it's, it's simply through the inherent beauty in what he produced.
-hmm. And then you can have an exceptional, beautiful person like Marilyn Monroe or some of the later beauty queens, uh, good-looking men. Then you have interpersonal ability. Uh, people are really able to charm other people, like politicians or humorists or good motivational speakers and good pastors, uh, preachers. Uh, they have this ability to, uh, to excite moral uh, adoration or whatever you want to call it. And then the fourth way that people are influenced morally is through the character of the person. And I'm thinking now of Jesus Christ, the Prophet Muhammad, Mother Teresa, Martin Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr. And of course, being from South Africa, I won't forget Nelson Mandela. And these are outstanding people who really impressed us with their compassion uh, for other people and their and just their character. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jesus never wrote anything down, you know. I mean, it, it's just that he so impressed people, they couldn't stop talking about it. Yeah. So in those four areas, uh, people's hearts are influenced. And, and they come to admire uh, people that exhibit those characteristics to one level or another. And, yeah. uh, and to me, it, it's really fascinating that it, because it sheds insight into what God is all about. He is all about trying to influence us in these ways, whether it's through the beauty of nature, through his ability to uh, speak to our hearts through scripture and the, and the messages that Jesus gave, the teachings of Jesus, uh, his character is revealed by Jesus. Um, yeah, it's very, very interesting that uh, he is because of the freedom of choice he's he's limited to what he can use and he uses these avenues to to win us to his side yes i couldn't agree with you more um some well-meaning uh leaders often use physical control as uh, a motivational tool for god and they will speak of hellfire and uh, brimstone to encourage people on a physical level uh, to repent and come to god uh, and yet God is a moral being, and I don't think he's very impressed with that kind of motivation. Yeah. So, I, Warren, I want to give you a quiz on physical versus moral influence or control. Okay. So I'll give you a situation, and then uh, you tell me whether it's uh, physical control or moral control, or maybe a mixture of the two. So what about the captain of a ship or an aircraft? Um, I, I would think that would be physical. He's able to maneuver the ship or the aircraft to make it go where he wants it to go. So I would say physical control. Uh-huh. What about a surgeon in an operating theater? Well, a surgeon is, he's kind of the boss in the operating theater. Everyone does what they do, serves what he is doing. And, and yet he certainly is not threatening them with violence or coercion to do that. So I think it's more of a, a respect that they have for him and his position and what he can accomplish. And they're there to, to enable him to do that. So yeah. I would say moral. Yeah. What about an army officer directing troops? I think that would be physical with uh, verbal beratement and <laughs> and <laughs> physical consequences if they step out of line. Uh, yeah, I would be say physical. How about a judge pronouncing a verdict? Hmm. Yeah, well, people respect judges. You know, when they come in, we stand and we address them in a very formal way. So I think there's a there's a moral aspect, but then the verdict has a physical aspect to it as well. So I guess that would be a combination of two. Yeah. How about a pastor or a politician speaking at a gathering of people? Um, I would say that would be moral, unless they are threatening to drink the Kool-Aid if they don't uh, conform. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, here's the last one. How about the influence of one alcoholic on another alcoholic? 
I think uh, I think that would be a moral thing that someone who has traveled that journey ahead of the other um, can influence that that person to know that there is a better life than what they're living because they've yeah. they've experienced that themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well done, well done. Collect your prize. All right. <laughs> so there there are questions that are asked because people do not understand um, that God uh, only has moral influence in the world so some of these questions are you know these questions where was god in the holocaust where was god in the genocide in serbia or rwanda where was god on september 11 2011 with the attacks of the new york twin trade towns i'll make it more personal where is god in abuse rape or the death of a child yeah i was amazed that uh, even the most secular people if they lose a small child They'll ask that question. So where's God? Why didn't he keep my child alive? Why didn't he heal my child? Mm -hmm. So these questions assume that God can control or manipulate the feelings of hate, which inspire acts like the Holocaust or genocide or the downing of the twin trade towers. But it, it hasn't been very well thought through because that implies that God can control our thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, the people who ask that question, where was God in the Holocaust? Are they really asking if God inspired the anti-Semitic thoughts in Nazi Germany? Yeah, it seems, I think what they're suggesting is why, why didn't God prevent that from happening? Yes, but implied in that is that he facilitated it happening instead of preventing it. Mm. But I like your point. So my answer to those questions are that uh, according to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. So the, the psalmist captures this uh, presence of God suffering with him. And Jesus says in John 15, verse 26, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And there he's referring to this trouble that we experience. And then it seems to me, Yes. Well, it, it, and it's not to say that we still won't experience trouble, but we have the assurance that he will be with us through the trouble, whatever it is. Yes. And then the cross is really a revelation of God's suffering with us. Think of all the people that were crucified by the Romans. And any one of them, if they met Jesus, uh, could understand when he said, I know what it's like. I've mm -hmm. been through that. Yeah. So there's a real problem with saying that God's in control. And the problem is the state of the world. At least a quarter of the planet goes to bed hungry every night. Hmm. Uh, in a 2017 report, we have 25 million modern day slaves. 16 are labor slaves and 5 million are sex slaves. Hmm. You know, 32 million people died of HIV. 500 million people died of the smallpox before it was eradicated. Hmm. If you average out the different accounts, 40 million people died in the Spanish flu in 1918, 1919. And then the population of the earth was less than 2 billion. So if we extrapolated it, it's now 8 billion, then we'd have to multiply the 40 million by four, which would give us 160 million people mm -hmm. who die with the Spanish flu if it occurred today. I mean, that's a horrendous amount of people. Yes, yeah. That's just a little less than half the population of the US. Mm -hmm. And it's about five times the population of Canada. Mm -hmm. So we'll, 
we managed to kill 15 million people in the First World War, and 50, 15 million, and in the Second World War, we killed about 50 million people. So my point is that if God's in control, uh, he's really doing a terrible job of it. <laughs> you know, and that's so true. I mean, it, when you know, I think that when God is in control, that then that will be heaven. And this yeah. certainly is not heaven. No. So um, then we have well-meaning people who say that, well, God's not in control, but he actually allows evil. Hmm. In fact, I, I have to admit, I think I've said that myself, that God didn't make these bad things happen, but he allows them to happen. All right, so here's the problem with saying that. Okay. Is that I think we all agree that God's all-powerful. Yes, I, I think that that's, that's uh, something that we would all agree that, yeah, he's God, so he can do whatever he chooses to do. So if you knew your daughter uh, was to marry Joe, it would end in divorce or abuse, and you, you're all-powerful. Would you allow that relationship to develop? No, I don't think you would. I would want to prevent her from that heartache. Yeah. If you knew a rattlesnake was down the road, would you allow your toddler to walk down that path? Mm, no. Suppose one of your kids is strangling another one of your children and you didn't stop them. Uh, could you really say, I didn't cause this killing, so don't blame me? Yeah, you know, it really says it in a different light because um, if I know it's happening, then I need to take responsibility uh, for uh, not stopping it. Yeah, so um, I don't think that this solves the problem or alleviates the problem in any way. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I think we need to ask the question, can God control our choices in a free moral universe? What does it mean to say we have free choice and, and then expect God to control our choices? Then we definitely don't have a free choice. Yeah, and, and God has allowed this whole great controversy to happen to respect our free choice. So we can't expect him to violate it when, when we want him to. Uh, that he's given us free choice, therefore, even though he's all-powerful, He's unable to to exercise his power in in the situations that we would want him to, and so in some ways he is forced to be more distant than we would like to imagine. Yeah, very good point. Uh, Maybe distant. Distant isn't the right word because we've just said that he walks with us through it, but yeah. distant in as far as preventing it from happening. Yeah, perhaps a better analogy is that uh, suppose your 18-year-old child um, has chosen to do drugs. And what are you going to do now as a parent? Mm. Because at 18, you can no longer control them physically or morally. Yeah. So maybe that's a, a better analogy for the situation that God is in. Mm -hmm. And our choices certainly affect our life and the lives of others. So uh, we don't forget that. So mm -hmm. another problem with a God allowing evil uh, is that we can say, well, God knows the end. And if it's going to lead to a happy ending, then that's okay. But we've always said that the end does not justify the means. You know, they, they use this uh, um, philosophizing in, uh, in the torture of heretics, because the torturers would argue that if they could get the person to repent and accept Christ into their lives, and then they would end their life before they could revert to wickedness again, that actually saved the person. Well. It is true that God can always bring good out of bad situations. But again, that does not justify God in allowing evil.
So now I want to go to the New Testament and read a few verses which clearly uh, tell us who has control of the world. So the first one, uh, if you'll read John 12, verse 31. The time for judging this world has come, when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. So this is a very authoritative voice. Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking at a time of great crisis. And he says, when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. Mm -hmm. So you like to talk about the temptations that came to Jesus. Do you want to talk about those? So the one, of the temptations, one of the temptations is, uh, is Jesus uh, taken to a high place and the devil shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, if you bow to me, I'll give all these kingdoms to you. And Jesus doesn't argue with him, uh, doesn't dispute that he isn't in control of those kingdoms. He, he realizes he is because Adam and Eve sold out to him in the Garden of Eden. And so uh, there was a real temptation because Jesus had come to win those uh, people uh, in a, by going to the cross. And here he gives them an easy way out. Just bow to me, acknowledge that I'm above God, and, and I will give you that control back again. Yeah, uh, that's a very valid point that Jesus does not dispute his authority in his will. Mm -hmm. So John 14, verse 30, um, Jesus is speaking again. I don't have much more time to talk to you. He's talking to his disciples. Because the ruler of this world approaches. And then Jesus says, parenthetically, he has no power over me. So clearly, uh, the ruler of this world had physical power over Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's going to make sure that he's executed. But he has no moral power over Jesus. Mm -hmm. there's, there's nothing in Jesus that is attracted to this ruler of our world. And John 16, 11. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. So we know when Jesus refers to the ruler of this world, that he's referring to Satan, uh, because of John 12, verse 31, the very first one that, that mm -hmm. we read. Uh, and then Hebrews 2.14 says this, For only as a human being could he die, and by dying could he break the power of the devil, who has the power of death. For that just to sink in a little bit, is that the one who has the power of death is the devil. Mm -hmm. So according to the writer of Hebrews, uh, we don't say the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. We say the Lord giveth and the devil taketh away. Yes. And just to back that up, uh, a very common verse quoted at funerals is that declaration of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life, which makes it impossible for Jesus to ever um, be involved with any kind of death. He's the one that gives life, not takes away. Yes. And you want to read the last one on this slide? First John 5, 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The whole world is under control of the evil one. Mm -hmm. Well, there is a, a real, it's obvious in Jesus' teaching that the devil is in control here. And, and he came to, to regain that control uh, away from the evil one. But the devil has con more control here than we would like to uh, admit. And that he has the power of death. Yeah. Which means that every death can be attributed to him. Mm -hmm. So that says something about the origin of uh, the coronavirus. Right. Lots of people are dying. And it's the devil that has the, the power of death. He's the one that controls that. So I want you to read John 10 verse 10. And this is a really amazing verse. 
the thief, referring to Satan, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus is talking, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. A definite yeah. contrast between the two there. I don't think you can make it any more plain than that. Yeah. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Uh, if we had only read one verse tonight, uh, we could have come to the conclusion that the cause of the coronavirus is Satan, not God. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty clear. So the character of uh, uh, Satan uh, is very clear in the book of Revelation. Uh, do you want to read Revelation 12, verse 3 to 5? And I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son, who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. So in Revelation 12, verse 9, that identifies this uh, dragon. It says this, the great, this great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or, or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world. So that, that makes the identification of the, the dragon that we've just been reading about very clear. And this passage tells us something about his character. He stands in front of a, a pregnant woman to devour her baby as soon as it's born. Now, I know that this has great prophetic symbolism. It's talking about Jesus. But if you just talk about uh, the morality of a being who could do this, uh, wants to devour a defenseless little baby, this is telling you something about the character of this being as opposed to the character of God. And it also connects with the serpent in Genesis. Um, yes. That it's an ancient serpent called the devil, the one deceiving the whole world. Yes. So um it's i hope it's clear that satan is in control of this plan and will be until jesus comes again so just coming back to this word control when i'm in control of my car i can make it go where i want when i want and at the speed i want and in this usage control is used as a synonym for total and complete manipulation of the machine you know if parents manipulated a child like this we'd call it parental abuse if a man manipulated a woman like this, we usually call it rape. If a ruler manipulates a country like this, we call it a fascism or dictatorship or something worse. Mm -hmm. And we certainly do not expect God to work in this way. Uh, this is the way of control and force and violence, which is part of the kingdom of this world and it's been developed by the prince of this world, but it's not part of the kingdom of heaven. So just to think for a few minutes on what choice means. Every parent with a teenager knows the time will eventually come when the parent will have to choose between retaining control of the car or providing the motoring freedom that teenager desires. And one thing is sure, as the teenager drives away from home for the first time with no parent in control, there's going to be anxiety in the parents' hearts <laughs> until that child returns safely. Yeah. That happened to you? Uh, you know, I, I can't say that I remember it. I know it did uh, because we had four teenagers and at one point they all uh, had that opportunity. So I think I tried to invest as much as I could in making sure they knew how to drive well and prayed that they'd uh, keep their wits about them. Mm -hmm. 
So I suppose that there are some parents uh, who refuse their teenagers the opportunity to drive by themselves. I wonder what the relationship would be like between those teenagers and their parents. Yeah. But you know, we live in a moral world and as individuals, we all know the desire to ride a bicycle alone, drive a car alone, maybe pilot a plane solo. Um, these are the choices that are available to us. And as we exercise the choices, we uh, actually are exercising our moral being. So that about sums it up for me. Adam took the car, in quotes. He had to if he was really free. There was a terrible accident, and we're still picking up the pieces or consequences today. Now, what happened on this planet proves that we were really free. Now we're in bondage to sin and Satan. And the mess of the planet proves that once and for all that we really were created morally free. So I was wondering, does a parent regret giving a child the car keys when they have an accident? Maybe, maybe they think uh, I should have waited another six weeks. Has God ever regretted giving Adam and Eve this freedom? Now I found the answer for that in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So God has faith in us in spite of our choices. He hopes in us yeah. in spite of our choices. And he loves us because of his choices. The greatest of these is love. Mm -hmm. It struck me that Jesus demonstrated that he could physically control storm and disease and death. But he could only invite people morally. And he would teach in the Sermon on the Mount, do not resist an evil person and love your enemies. And he demonstrated throughout his whole life and also his death that he did not resist evil people. Sometimes he would disappear out of their clutches, but he would always come back. Mm -hmm. And he calls us to take up our cross. And that is a very uh, stronger call because there was only one reason for you to take up your cross, and that was because death was imminent. This demonstrates that Jesus is not about control. He's about vulnerability, which is the service of love. You now first heard this from a frail French woman, Simone Weil. She died about at the age of 30 from tuberculosis, a very frail woman. And yet she understood that if you don't make yourself vulnerable uh, to the person you claim you love, you don't really love that person. Mm. So vulnerability means that you share your fears and uh, your failures, uh, with the person you love. It, it's all part of, it, part of this loving. If you always keep your distance and you're always triumphalistic, you only share your good points and your, the times you won, that is not love. So when Jesus says, now is my soul troubled unto death to his disciples, he's being very vulnerable with them. So this vulnerable death of his on the cross was foolishness to the Jews and the Greeks. Because they lived and thought in the kingdom of this world where control is essential. How could a man who did not resist anyone evil be a messiah? You know, it troubles me that I don't really understand this very well. That we are called to give away control which does not serve us for God's love and vulnerability which cannot fail us. I, I have to admit, Warren, that I really struggle with this concept of not resisting an evil person and loving my enemies, but it seems to be right at the heart of the kingdom of heaven. It's so different than the kingdom of the world. It's really hard to understand how to how that fits, but it's, it's what Jesus taught, yeah.
So this, this is what really makes sense to the songs that are sung, the songs of worship and adoration that are sung in the book of Revelation. Now you want to read the first one in 11.15? Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So you don't sing a song like this unless the kingdom of the world did not belong to the Lord and it is Christ. So that's the significance of the song. And there's another one in Revelation 12 verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last. So that phrasing at last means that it's been waited for for a long time. It has come at last. Salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth the one who accuses them before our God day and night. So the, these songs rejoicing in the fact that finally control on the earth, moral and physical, has passed into God's hands. So how shall we conclude this podcast? This way, hallelujah. God's love is going to triumph. It will happen eventually. And we are prisoners of hope in him. And very glad for this hope. Dear God, we are happy to be in your presence. In your presence, we remember that you suffer more than we have ever suffered, even collectively. That, that your beautiful creation chose to follow an evil being. And we really feel sad for the suffering we have caused you. And we pray with all the zeal and ardor we have in our hearts tonight. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you so much for joining us today. If you would like to contact us, you can at Rediscovering God on Facebook or Instagram, or send us an email to rediscoveringgod20 at gmail.com. We are encouraged to hear how this picture of God is making a difference for you. And if you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple, you can leave a review or rate the podcast so that others will become more aware of a God that is love as revealed by Jesus Christ. Thank you.